Welcome to Ellen the Great Podcast. I'm Ellen Wanjiro, and I am conquering the unknown one episode at a time. In honor of Father's Day, I will be telling a short story about my dad. But before I begin, I'd like to share one of my favorite quotes. Dads are most ordinary men turned by love into heroes, adventurers, storytellers, and lifelong friends. Whenever I read that quote, it makes me think of my dad and our relationship and how much it means to me. I met my soon-to-be dad for the first time in 1986 when I was just six years old. My mother introduced him to me as her friend, Professor Maruku Waiguchu. He was a Kenyan native who had migrated to America in the 60s and had been there for 20-plus years teaching at a university in New Jersey. The only two things that stood out about that encounter was how perfectly white his teeth were and that he'd given me a dollar and told me that I could buy a hot dog with it when I came to America. The next time I saw him was when my mother and I, following their three-year courtship, moved from Nairobi, Kenya to his Dutch colonial home in the Eastside Park Historic District of Patterson, New Jersey. The year was 1989, and it was a warm and sunny June afternoon when we arrived at our new home. I was in awe of the perfectly manicured lawns and tall trees that lined the street as if protection was their number one priority. There were 14 houses in our long block, seven on each side of the street. Ours was the only one with red exposed brick on the bottom half and white paneling on the top half. There was also a brick chimney and a long driveway that led up to a huge two-car garage. Upon my entrance into the house, the first thing that struck me was the red shag carpet and pea-green couches. It was desperately in need of a woman's touch. The second thing was the scent of the most amazing aroma I had ever smelled. I later found out that it was Joy dish detergent. Until this day, when I smell Joy, it takes me back to that special day when my new life commenced. After getting over the initial shock of my new surroundings, I sat down next to my mother and tried my best to keep calm as I surveyed the scene. I don't remember much interaction with my new dad that first day. I think we were both nervous with happiness for different reasons. For me, the idea of being 8,533 miles away from the only home I'd known held the promise of adventure and excitement. For him, the woman he loved had agreed to move to America to be with him. They tied the knot less than a year later. As time raced by, I rapidly grew to love my new dad. He was kind, caring, funny, knew everything about anything, rarely raised his voice and laughed at my silly jokes. It was a level of fatherly love and attention I'd never received. He also loved my mother tremendously and that made me feel safe, like things would never change. He was the consummate provider. My mother didn't have to work. She chose to. He made it clear that she did not have to spend her own money unless she wanted to. He didn't use profanity. He didn't drink. He didn't hang out. Loved watching wrestling or boxing. Laughed a lot with my mom and took care of home. And when he wasn't teaching or enjoying downtime, he was in his home office writing books, reading, or developing proposals. He was also a hands-on dad. He made me practice my penmanship every day was big on chores, he braided my hair sometimes, listened to me and made me feel loved and wanted. He was also big on discipline, rules and restrictions, things I'd never had largely due to the spoiled and ungoverned life I led back in Nairobi. It didn't take long to realize that he was no pushover. 
And as a teenager, I tested that theory plenty of times, which often resulted in us butting heads. I envied the freedom my friends had, the freedom to hang out, buy cool and trendy clothes, go to parties, have sleepovers, or even have a boyfriend. All the things that were the very antithesis to what he believed I should be doing with my time. To say I was a rebellious teenager would be an understatement. I gave him and my mother a run for their money. It wasn't until my mid-twenties that I started to appreciate his unwavering need to teach me hard lessons. He could have easily thrown in the towel. After all, I didn't have his blood coursing through my veins. But he never stopped trying and always made me feel like I mattered. He never stopped supporting me and my dreams. He never gave me a reason to doubt his love. I'd literally hit the jackpot with this man as my dad. Because only a man with a heart of gold would take in a kid that isn't his and treat that kid like his own. So much so that the absence of my biological father never fazed me. As far as I was concerned, I knew one man to be my dad. I took a creative writing course at George Washington University once, and as an assignment, I wrote a non-fiction story about my dad titled Knowing When to Quit. It's only fitting that I share it. I've always been intrigued by the man that my dad was, long before he evolved into an even-tempered and mild-mannered wise man. Till this day, his temperament reminds me of placid waters. One specific memory stands out. I was 10 years old, and my dad and I were at Grand Union Supermarket in Elmwood Park, New Jersey. It was a Sunday afternoon, and we were busy in the produce aisle husking sweet corn. He was dressed in his standard white button-down collared dress shirt, gray slacks, a red, white, and blue beaded leather Maasai belt, one of his favorites, and black penny loafers. There was a large bin placed next to the display of corn for the purpose of disposing husks. My dad, bless his heart, ignored the large bin and instead threw the husks on the floor. A fellow shopper, having watched him from afar, approached us and proceeded to read my dad the riot act. I was dumbfounded and almost in tears as I watched an irate middle-aged white woman wag her finger in my dad's face while cursing him out. He, unaffected by the angry bee, just stood there, looking at her, while smiling. A few minutes later, she buzzed off, and he continued husking his corn. Boy, she was mad as hell, huh? He said to me as he threw the corn husks inside the bin. My fascination with my dad as an individual, separate from fatherhood, started when I moved out and no longer saw him as the grand enforcer of rules and regulations— over the years, I'd wondered how the choices that he'd made in his 20s and 30s affected the ebb and flow of his life. Three things in particular had always been of keen interest to me. Why he didn't drink alcohol, didn't eat red meat, and wore dentures. So I began asking him questions about his past. And to my pleasant surprise, my dad was eager to tell me his story. His exact words to me were, Someone can learn a thing or two from my biography. It was early 1959, and the state of emergency issued in Kenya eight years earlier was still in effect. Nairobi and Kenya as a whole was socially, economically, residentially, and politically divided into racial lines. The whites at the top, Indians in the middle, and the Africans at the bottom. It was around that same time that Africans started agitating for freedom, just as it was happening in America with the civil rights movement. Maruku was 21 and worked as a clerk in a bank dealing with out-of-town checks, his first job in the big city. 
He beat out 37 other boys who took an exam for the bank job and was one of three who did well in arithmetic and composition. The bank job paid well and afforded him simple luxuries that had been foreign to him up until that point. Money, freedom, an apartment, and entertainment. Maruku, for the first time in his life, was making more money than his old university friends, and when they came home on holiday, he would often see them dressed in their baggy brown suits and black shoes, drunk and staggering around town like zombies in the night, and he would marvel at how cool they looked. He wanted to be cool like the university boys, and within a short time, he became one of them. Weekends were full of political rallies and dancing at nightclubs with girls, and it wasn't long before he started drinking just to get drunk. One particular night, Maruku, in his drunken state, mistook a police car for a taxi cab and got in the back seat. In those days, all the police vehicles were driven by the British because Africans were not given cars. Would you please drive me to Pumwani Maternity Hospital to see my girlfriend? he asked. The police officer took one look at him and drove straight to Kingsway Police Station where they kept him overnight. When he was released the next morning, his brown suit was soaking wet from the police throwing water inside his cell to wake him up. The only logical lie that he could come up with to explain the drenched and messy suit to his bank manager was that he had been arrested for unpaid taxes. Maruku was arrested almost 50 times for talking back to the British, or getting drunk, or going to the wrong whites-only bar or restaurant. It was on a dance floor, and he knew how to cut a rug in those days, that he attracted another boy's girlfriend. He asked her for a date and got it. Two weeks later, at a mar bar and club, that girl's boyfriend, accompanied by two of his friends, gave him a thorough beating and threw him into an open drainage outside the back of the club. That following morning, he woke up in that same drainage, bloody and missing two front teeth. Next to a mar bar was a restaurant where a young lady worked. She knew Maruku well, and when she found him that morning, she helped him inside the restaurant, cleaned him up, and took him to an Indian dentist. That was a Tuesday night, and from the following Wednesday of that week to date, Maruku has never tasted any alcohol. The only liquids that quench his thirst these days are Kenyan tea or coffee, sunny delight, orange soda, and the occasional glass of Coca-Cola. At 5'7 and 118 pounds, Maruku was a fairly skinny guy. After leaving Kenya and moving to Ohio in the early 60s, he managed to maintain his slim build up until the early 70s. Between 1970 and 1975, in the company of two friends, a Kenyan and a guy from Barbados, Maruku frequented Geno's, a popular burger joint that preceded Burger King. Geno's Giant was the featured burger which predated and later competed with Big Mac. Almost every day, Maruku and his friends would go to Gino's and in one sitting eat five Gino Giant Burgers and drink two or three Cokes. Within five years, Maruku weighed about 200 pounds. A short while later, his two friends, who were physically bigger and even heavier, passed away within four months apart, courtesy of diagnosed heart attacks. They were a little older than he was at 37. The Kenyan was 39 and the Barbadian was 41. Maruku panicked and figured he would be next, so he went without eating regular meals for two full weeks and lived only on juices and fruits. And it worked, because his weight fell from 200 to 182 pounds. That was the last time he ate red meat. Now, his food preferences consist of boiled chicken and potatoes with no salt, traditional dishes like mukimo, a mashup of spinach, potatoes, peas, and dry corn, or ugali, 
a corn flour cooked with water to a dough-like consistency. He's been known to eat a slice of cheese pizza every now and again, but only after he's patted it dry with a heap of napkins. IHOP is one of his favorite places to go, and he orders the same thing every time. A stack of five pancakes with no butter and no syrup, just the way God made them things. His exact words to the waitress. The country buffet in Laurel, Maryland was another favorite before it closed. He would go there almost every day for lunch and get the senior discount. All you can eat for $6.95. His go-to meal was two or three baked rotisserie chicken legs that had to be patted down with napkins to get rid of excess oil, plain white rice, corn, shredded carrots, cornbread, and applesauce, and all that food would be piled on one plate. Every now and then, a little dessert would make the cut. Strawberries, a sliver of apple pie, and a cookie for good measure. Knowing when to quit bad habits saved my father's life. And at 85, he is one of the healthiest and most energetic people I know. After hearing those stories, among many others, I became even more curious about him. Who he was as a little boy and teenager, his upbringing, and all the experiences that played a role in molding him. He asked me to write his biography a while back, and so I started recording him as he told me his life story from birth, and wow, as he so eloquently put it. Okay, so you want to do a biography? Yes. Why? <laughs> uh, I think somebody might learn a thing or two from it. First of all, it's unbelievable. The story of your life? Yeah, it's, it's not believable, because it doesn't happen so often that you start where I started and you become something. It doesn't. There are many who are born and raised in the same uh, environment. An environment is a plantation. And uh, most people do not know what is a plantation because they don't exist anymore. It's almost semi-slavery. Um, many of us just didn't make it out of it. Yeah. I have no good explanation how I made it out. But you made it out. <laughs> yes, I did. <laughs> yeah. No, I was saying, if you're going to think of somebody who lived a life of accident, it's me. No parental guidance of any kind. I do not know why it wasn't there. Most things I have had to do to burn the fingers to back off. Sometimes the damage went too far. But then, God is good. <laughs> I'll pull up. There has been virtually no guidance. Uh, there's nobody to blame. Who who could I blame? Nobody. No. Not Mammy. Mammy always wanted her little boy to get a girl, get married, make babies. <laughs> uh, so, now, uncles? Not particular. They didn't do much. Mm. Okay. No, let me not talk. I can keep on talking and talking. Okay. All right. Thank you, my dear. I get so emotional whenever I think about him and his journey. All that he knows. All that he's seen. Who he is today to me, to our family, and so many others whose lives he's affected and changed. I can't thank you enough for the mighty role you have played in my evolution. You've taught me so much and continue to do so till this day. I love you, Dad, and happy Father's Day. Thank you for tuning in to Ellen the Great Podcast. Please like and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. And for more information and social media links, visit my website at ellenthegreat.com.
www.thinkingoutloud.com. Till next time.